0: The mayfly is up and the excitement is palpable
1: wherever you are in ireland the lakes and rivers are soon to be hatching with mayfly soon
0: and to help you improve your catch rate this season we've used a mayfly tactics masterclass with international angler guide and renowned tire jackie Mann.
1: if you want to learn about setup tactics conditions and flies then head over to www.irelandonthefly.com forward slash masterclass where you can find out all the details to access the recording and jackie's notes
0: If you want to catch that difficult fish or try out new tactics, then this masterclass is for you.
1: Hello and welcome to the Ireland on the Fly podcast about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland. We're into february slowly the season is starting to kick into gear and spring is in the air stay tuned in the coming weeks as we get updates on the salmon rivers and locks around ireland and we'll be bringing you more tips and information for getting the most out of your fishing as the season progresses but for our latest episode we're continuing our fly fishing book club and this time we speak to dan o'donovan the author of salmon of the river lee as well as a monograph on sydney spencer Now, Dan's book on the Lee is a fascinating social and cultural insight into the communities around Cork's famous river, and we delve into the heyday of the Lee before its damming in 1957, and the effects that has had on the fishing, the people, and the subsequent decline in fish numbers as well. But first, Tom, I have to say, when I bought the book recently, I was pleasantly surprised with the information and various insights from anglers that were included in it, and there's so much information to learn from the book itself.
0: Yeah, Dara. Oh, yeah. How's it going? No, um. Well, like all in all it's a fascinating publication anyway but um as you say there the insights from the other anglers really lend to us it because it's kind of nice that way it, it you know a river is special to people and a river means different things to to different to different guys and that comes across when you see you know different anglers talking about it and that was just one aspect of it i mean i have to say i was blown away by the book when i looked at it i mean just the pictures alone will keep you occupied. And and we discussed one of them there. And if you ever get a chance to see the one of them, um, the confiscated salmon hole by the poachers. I mean, wow. <laughs> what do you think of that?
1: That's mind blowing. So it's uh, page 28, 29 of the book. And it's a beautiful picture from, from the examiner archives, like the quality of the picture. But like, what is it? I think there's a dozen, um, uh, bailiffs or whatever. there you were saying their, that some their, of them might have been types. guards?
0: I presume there were bailiffs, but then I'm talking to him that there was a chance that they might have been guards as well.
1: Like, but I, I thought was it really interesting was um, as Dan explains is how the early years post Free State mm. that they were trying to nip the poaching in the bud, this kind of lawlessness, this kind of Wild West kind of, because they were trying to develop the tourism side. They wanted the anglers back visiting, you know, and obviously it's hard to. You know, Ireland had gone through yeah. such tumult and revolution, and and war in the years that you know. Obviously, a lot of the English anglers who would have come to Ireland, I and mean, oh, even yeah. like Dublin anglers, I presume. Are you going to be going down to Cork? See, or Gary, think <laughs> you, you, see, know, it's you could be getting actually, shot at? Like
0: you know. without delving too much into it, but I, I presume there could have been a portion, let's say, of people who were poachers who would have thought, now with the free state, we are perfectly entitled to take salmon as any way we feel like, because it's a change of government. Whereas, you know. We as anglers would say, no, <laughs> regardless, you know, it's, it's the free state government now, but we, yeah. you know, we want to manage this, we want to have it for anglers, we want to have it as, as, um, not a utility, you know, an amenity or whatever. And also a means of making proper yeah. money.
1: Exactly. Like, it. exactly. And, and like the other thing. better as well is you know, the, the country was so poor at that time as well. And, you know, and then you had, you know, like, I'm just looking at that photo it was 1927. Uh, you know, so old, we we're only yeah. a couple of years into the free state, like, but, and it was also then as interesting as in the bibliography and dance was that, and I'd forgotten about it was that the free state, the angler's guide uh, or the free yeah. state guides uh, to angling again. Yeah. So they were trying to develop these publications like guides for people to say, look here, if you want to come. They really did, didn't they?
0: They put an effort into it. Yeah. Really pushing it like. I, have the I have the 1948 copy of that actually.
1: No way.
0: Yeah, I do actually. The angler's guide. To, as, to, uh, Compiled by the Department of Agriculture Fisheries Branch in Dublin. That's who published it. It's a hardbound copy. It's a fantastic book. But you know, as you say, they they really did push it, didn't they?
1: Yeah. No, they were trying to get on their feet and try and get Mm. control of it. Like it was. um, I have to say, those all and fair play to Dunes, because I think it started off. with saying the initial they asked him what he do. I think it was the history of the club, and he was like, "I've no interest in that, but I want to do (laughs) it."
0: Fair play to him. Well, he's right too. You know, that would have just you know. And not saying the lads of the club, but that would have only been of interest to most of the guys in the club and a few people outside. But the you know the league is that you know it's nationwide and beyond.
1: Yeah, and, you know, really it is. And um, and he delved into it like you know the um, I was fascinated by the 1800s. A lot of information, a lot of research on it. You know the kind of you know what the catches were like. You know what the you know the the, the kind of even he's talking about a closed season in 1842 being welcomed by Anders It's I have to be careful. I'm mad into history and you're in the beginning as this. I, yeah, as well. I talk good, all day no. about this the stuff like yeah,
0: yeah, exactly.
1: the fly fishing history podcast. There would be a there'd be a niche now.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, they be crawling at the door. But...
1: <laughs> That's another. I, I see another spinoff coming.
0: <laughs> <Yeah, right. laughs> Four <some> others.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although I have to say though Andrew Hurd, he'd be the man to you just have him on every week and just listen to him talk <laughs> about
0: <laughs> life fishing history like you know I do you know what we just sit back ask the odd question
1: yeah exactly
0: I, I think I was very impressed with that with the, uh, was um, his research into the naming of the pools and the old Irish names because I I like that as well because I'm I'm fascinated by Irish names around here yes. as well and where where they come from so. I mean, there were so many things to take. There are so many things to take from it, you know? It is.
1: No, it is. Fair play to Dan. And we do hope to speak to Dan again um, later in the year because he also wrote a monograph about Sidney Spencer, Mm. um, who wrote quite a bit about fishing uh, in Donegal, I believe. Um, So we'll speak to Dan later in the year about that. But look, let's first hear from Dan um, about his book, The Salmon of the River Lee. And uh, he first explained to me the background to the Lee's reputation.
2: The Lee was a very, very famous Salmon River up to the commissioning of the dams in 1957. And even in Cork, up to the time of writing the book, that knowledge um, was largely lost, I would say. And people elsewhere around the country wouldn't have regarded the Lee as a serious Salmon River. But the reality is that prior to the dams, the Lee had a very envied reputation of being a very early spring river with a large run of spring salmon, the order of 10, 11 pounds on average, uh, with some much, lar- much larger than that. And <clears throat> apart from the spring fish, it had a run of salmon every month of the year. Now, there's a, a few rivers can, can boast that, but many of course are just uh, summer rivers, maybe autumn rivers. So those that can have salmon twelve months of the year are something pretty special, and as a consequence of having an early spring run, it does bring a lot of uh, well-to-do visitors. Um, back in the nineteenth century and in the years prior to the dam, and those people would come from around Ireland, uh, at, but quite a lot would come from across the water, and they fished the Lee in February, March, April, up to May. Now, also part of the Lee's history is the difficulty that the salmon have in getting into uh, the freshwater river where it meets the tide at Cork City in times of low or drought flow. There's a collection of weirs there um, complicated by the fact that at the top of the tide, the leaf splits and goes uh, around an island, which makes up the centre of Cork City. So, if the water is bed low, as it would be very often in the summer, there's no fresh fish up the river, and as a consequence, um, you didn't have the visitors coming so much at that time of the year. Um, the river was always uh, was also famous. For the amount of poaching that went on on a tremendous scale down in Cork Harbour, which is very large with uh, drift nets and draft nets and stake nets up in the city uh, with nets um, plus legalised trapping in both channels of the river um, and straw calling netting when you got up into the fresh water up to the mid-19th century you, you had netting way, way up, not so far from the headwaters, um, and of course you had the famous sponge poisoning um, and sometimes lime poisoning. So there's—I'm after giving enough there to say <laughs> that it was a mystery to me how so many fish kept coming in in voluminous numbers. Um, uh, but they did, um, I suppose, testimony to the quality of the spawning tributaries and the quality of the water that was there in, in, in those days. Um, so we had a club anniversary, our club being the Cox Enders, of which I'm a member, and we had an important club anniversary coming up and we wanted to to do something to mark um, that occasion. And some guy came up with the idea of Dan writing a history of uh, the club, and I—I I couldn't be bothered. I said that would be a dreary old dirge of a tongue altogether. But I said I was much more interested in writing a history of the river, so that people, when all of us here are long dead and gone, would pick up the book. Um, and see what the river once was, and see how it deteriorated, why it deteriorated, and see what it is today. Now, it's not all doom and gloom, um, because the Lee today still ranks in terms of its catch records, as evidenced by the wild salmon and sea trout uh, statistics report that issues uh, every year. It's it's one of the top rivers in the country, and um, it's it's. Catches are always in the top ten. Um and um that's notwithstanding that there is still a considerable draft net fishery in the mouth of the river. So that's the background to to the the writing of the book. So no, I didn't write it all on my own. As as you have seen from glancing through the book, members were invited to write a little story of what the Lee meant for them, etc. Uh, some Read letter there, whatever, and, and quite a few did. And I also got uh, considerable help from the editor of the book, uh, Jack Power. Now, Jack was a master with words. It was his profession. He was in your line of business, Dara. Um, and he worked for the Irish Examiner at the time. So he, he was able to get access to some of the old photographs. Now, if you've seen the book or any of your listeners have seen the book, they'll see that on about Page 2829, there's a centrepiece photograph there. Now, that was a picture taken in 1927. There's almost 200 fish there. I tried to count them. Um, And the extraordinary thing about that photograph isn't the volume of fish that's there. It's when the photograph was taken. That photograph was taken in the middle of January 1927. And more than any of my words, that proves the early run of spring fish to the lee. Indeed, that run used to start. So the old anglers used to tell me, who'd remember the the the, the, the river pre-dams when I was young, who so started fishing first in the mid 1960s. That run would start towards the end of November normally, but would get under pace at a reasonable rate. In December, pick up in January, February, March, and indeed in April in the old days, would start to, to, to taper off. And when I was researching the book, I spent lots of time in places like um, the BFI offices in McCroom accessing the old uh, minutes book of the Cork Board of Conservators um, of the Lee. And I was able to to verify that about those early runs and the level of poaching that would go on, you know, up to Christmas and that sort of thing. Um, And I came across several records similar to the fish in those photographs. There's another one springs to mind of 140 fish that I came across. Um, Another man being prosecuted for having something like 97 salmon or something at that time of the year um, all spring fish. So, um... I thought was important to get that down and um, let it be on record. I to say,
1: that photo, Dan, that photo is incredible. I'd recommend for anybody to check it out. It's on page um, 2829. 20, uh, it's, it's, if I can even try and describe it, it's about a dozen, um, is it, de- dress. De- in- yeah, Gardaí. Yeah,
2: I think they were supposedly detectives, but I imagine yeah. that there were a few of... Um, of them uh could have been um uh they were called bailiffs at the time, um the equivalent to to today's by officers.
1: They're dressed in suit and ties and they're sitting there either crossed armed, but basically in front of them is the ninety percent of the, the fish just lying there and then there's a couple of them hanging behind them on a gate and it's it's taken outdoors. It's an incredible picture because the salmon are three four deep. Stretching Mm -hmm. for probably twenty feet, you know, in a kind of a kind of an arc in front Mm -hmm. of them, like it's
2: yeah up against
1: that. Uh, It's just mind blowing to see it, like, and to give you some, like you said, to give you some idea. Do you know what my thought when I read when I saw that as well? Because I was looking at the pictures of the bailiffs. What happened to the
2: fish afterwards? (laughs) I thought. I thought that too. (laughs) <laughs> they, they 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 would have been sold, and I would have seen references to that in the old conservators' uh, minutes books of these fish being being sold. And and um, interestingly enough, um, I came across in some I think it was the Marine Institute Library in Oranmore. I spent two days inside in that place. Uh, the, over the years, various commissions of. Inspection inquiry into various states of play and rivers, and um, the, the kind of thing that came up that struck me uh, that, that I'd often thought of myself. It was only when I got into some of these reports I realized why. The Lee has always opened on the 1st of February, and so the me why it didn't open, say like the Liffey on the first of January or uh, the Drawers and that, and the reason was very clear. When it opened on the first of February, it's opened on the first of February, and the um, the board of conservators held the majority over uh, the anglers had the majority over the Netsmen, usually by one of a majority, and there were constant and ongoing um, requests for decades from the legal netsmen to bring the season forward to the 15th of January or the 1st of January. And the rods took the view that, look, keep the nets off the river and let the fresh water get stocked before the nets come out. So that's why on opening day on the 1st of February, there would be quite a few fish in the river. And it wasn't unusual on opening day to have coloured fish. Um, because they could have run um, 1st of February, they could have run two months ago. And I came across, in the course of my research, a, a diary of a lady called Violet Fane, who came to fish the Lee in, uh, for six weeks, from the 1st of February to mid-March 1914. Uh, Largely fishing with fly and she fished on very good water, water that's um, uh, for the most part is, uh, Orthov has it today, the orchard hole and the kennel stream, they'd be still very good waters today. And Violet in her 45 days of of fishing, uh, she fished through all conditions of weather, yellow floods, snow, ice, you name it, she had it. She caught 45 fish, um, sorry, she had 45 days fishing and to her own rod she had 21 salmon that weighed 265 pounds. That's a fair old average. Her best fish was 22 pounds. But on the first day of the February for her, February the second, she had two fish and both were slightly coloured spring fish. And she wondered first of all were they fish that hadn't spawned on it until it was, told her by some of the local uh, people seeing to her that this was normal enough, the, the fish ran so early that they had taken some colour by the start of the season Amazing. can
1: I ask you Dan as well, um, and I had actually forgotten about this publication because it was in your bibliography The Angler's Guide to the Irish Free State um, Oh yes, yes and a so basically, because I just I just want to quickly talk about that one. I think that was in the nineteen late twenties, was it that it was first published? But the whole idea behind it was basically they wanted to kind of clamp down on the poaching, and basically encourage the tourism side of
2: angling. Um, once more yeah. post post civil war, is that right? You'd have to say that our founding fathers, Collins et al, um, there were more than gunmen, um, and these. Civil war here ended, I think, around May 1923, when hostilities effectively ceased. In 1924 and 1925, there were two fishery acts brought out that were very, very far-reaching. They gave uh, fishery officers the power, far, far, far stronger powers than they used to have. They could stop and inspect your horse and car or your motor car, or if they had reasonable grounds, they could come in and inspect your house. It also extended the powers to the the, the new guard, the Shiakhana, to 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 search and become involved in fisheries, because the the powers that be realised they had to get the economy moving and had to take advantage of everything. That's one of the reasons why they started the Shannon scheme as well to generate electricity to cover basically the country's needs. But they needed. Um, uh, but the the external income that the UK visitors brought. Now, remember as well that fishing in Ireland would be reported in the two main fishing um, magazines, stroke newspapers. That would be the Fishing Gazette, which was a weekly publication, and the Field Magazine. And you had rivers like the Lee, um, the Shannon, the Blackwater, uh, the Moy, the, the main rivers would be reported every week in those newspapers. So the better the catches that were shown in those, um, the better for tourism. There was also a number of books written. Um, that guide that you described um, would be the kind of guide that should not be unlike the tourist guides you'd have today would tell you where to go and when and what to expect and where to stay um, and gave a little bit more than there was another guide at the time that was there since uh, uh, around 1860, 1870. The name of it isn't coming to me now. But um, it's far more detailed than that about the rivers. Um, and that was commissioned by the Free State Government. But there were a number of other books written as well. There's a chap comes to mind, Captain Bertie Drout, um, uh who wrote a fishing and shooting book. And then there's a book written by a man... Uh, I refer to him in the book there, Sing is his name, S-E-I-N-G-E, I think, off the top of my head, um, and that book, and both those books, I suspect that they were commissioned to perhaps write those books, um, because they were telling how much improved things were, and After the Civil War, the British tourist was afraid of his life to come to Ireland. They expected that the fishing would go down the tubes, by the way. Um, But much to their surprise, um, with proper policing, um, it it really um, started to improve no end. Um, And that brought the visitors in because they, they seemed to worry less about getting shot the more they heard about good fishing. Uh, so uh, I suppose that's something resonates with us all. The more we hear about fish being caught, the more the urge takes us to to get out and get a part of the action ourselves.
1: <laughs> Tell me this, Dad. Um, I might just take it up to then the fall, um, because you've painted a very good picture of you know how good the the, the run was um, throughout the season on the river and how popular. But really, talk us through. Um, the damming of it and the consequences of that and you know maybe just give us the kind of context for the rationale behind the damming
2: well the rationale is pretty straightforward i mentioned earlier about the shannon scheme ireland had you know lots of towns um, all around the country even cities were relying for electricity um, on a few private suppliers there was no consistency all the rural areas had had no electricity at all so um when the British ruled here, they had been looking from the, uh, from the 19th century at damming the Shannon uh, for generating electricity. But the Free State Government took it in earnest and Siemens came on board. And when that came into commission in the late 1920s, that effectively produced as much electricity as the country needed. But quickly, the state found as it started to develop that it needed more. And you had the Earn scheme and um, you had the Liffey, I think, and the Lee. I think the Lee was the fourth major scheme. And initial planning on that started in the 40s and work got underway about 1952 or thereabouts. And those dams were commissioned in 1957. Um, it had a dramatic impact on the river. Now, the, the lee is something over 50 miles um, uh, long. And effectively, the best of the salmon fishing was um, between Cox City and Macroom, which is roughly about 20 miles. And the lower dam at Innescara, that was constructed um, eight miles above the tide. And it was, from the very outset, it was a disaster for, for, for firstly. The best of the fly fishing water was above the dam. Some famous beats uh, like the Fargus comes to mind uh, instantly. Um, Captain Drought mentioned that in one of his books as as for the favoured uh, few. Um, the the dam then at Innescara, it it ranks in the status of world dams as a very high dam. It's by far the highest in the country. Depending on which set of ESB statistics you look at, it's either 140 or 150 feet high. And if you stand at the top of it, as, as I have a few times, and you look at how the fish are supposed to get up, and they can get up at the, the Lee Dam, that, that's, that's not a difficulty. But where the difficulty is in the smolts getting down. Now, in the early days of the dams being commissioned, the smolts were unable to find access to the, uh, the fish pass. Um, when that was corrected in the mid-1960s, the fish, the smolts were able to get into the pass, but there's a serious question mark as to what percentage of them survived the fall of well over 100 feet before they hit the water below. Um, there's no great science as to how they come down. They come tumbling down in a column of water so there's things like impact, um, pressure, uh, turbulence. When I say pressure, I'm talking about water pressure and, the, and, and changes therein that, that can damage a smolt. And a, a smolt is a very, very vulnerable creature when he goes down river and when he hits the salt. So a smolt, for example, I discovered from 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 uh, different pieces of research. He could have a, a damage coming through a dam, um, and that might not manifest itself below the dam, but when he'd hit, say, salt water, he could, um, from his injuries that he might be carrying, the stress of, of a healthy mode, hitting the salt water can impact on him. But if there's any damage at all, it can end in, in fatality. That was one immediate consequence. Another was the rate at which they filled the dams, the reservoirs um in, in the two dams on the lead. They filled them quite quickly, apparently. And the impact of that was the rotting vegetation took the dissolved oxygen content out of the water so that when they started to generate, say, through in Ascara, um, the lower dam, the, the water, people must understand, the water into the um, turbines, it comes in the pence, the the intakes the penstock intakes not from the top of the dam but from well below the top of the dam and that water has even less oxygen in it there so when that deoxygenated water went down the river any fish that were below couldn't breathe and it killed the, the it didn't wipe out the run totally but it killed salmon in their thousands. And that's covered in the minutes again. And as I was, when I was a young lad fishing, I often had the old anglers talking about it. You had everyone in Cork in, in who had any association to the river, whether they were living near it or whether they were anglers, they'd walk the banks to pick out the salmon that had died from oxygen um, every time there'd be a rise and fall of the water. The fish would be perfect, you know, and they, 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 they were sold on. There, there's no statistical record of, how many salmon were killed from lack of oxygen. But what we do know is in the first three years of the dam, 1957, 58 and 59, there's just about 3,000 fish a year survived to go through the dam pass on their way upstream and they were counted. Now we know the smokes weren't coming down. In 1960 the figures going through the dam was 803 and in 1961 that fell to 163 fish. Now you must remember that's an amazing both, drop. So you're talking
0: in from when the dam was in at first, Dan. Uh, yeah, three thousand down to a figure of about a hundred.
2: Yeah, hundred and sixty-three in a period and, of what? Five or six years? Four years, four or five four years. Four years, four or five years. Uh, yeah. Um, wow,
0: Dan, Dan, <coughs> so, sorry, now I just want to cut back now because there. But just the thing I wanted to ask you: Was there any opposition to the dam? at the time
2: there was um but limited and in their heart of hearts people knew that it, it was progress it, it it had to be done and it had been the, the, there were precedents for it the iron scheme like and all of the leaves it left eight miles of water the iron the, the bottom dam is there at as as uh uh Bally-Shana, Bally-Shana, Bally-Shana. isn't it and and yeah, yeah. Like, that river is devastated, absolutely devastated. The Shannon, my goodness, I've written a book about the lee, but wouldn't we all love if someone had written a book about the glory days of uh, the fishing at Castle Connell and the various fisheries that were there. Uh, the snippets that you'll get in angling books um I, I have an extract someplace of of a piece written by a guy called John Rennie or and um battles with giants. There's a marvelous account in Fred Buller's book um of the giant fish, the the, the, the giant salmon um volume two of a Man is he McDonnell is his name, um getting a fish of something over fifty pounds at Dunast. Um it it like it it. Would bring a tear to your eye to listen to it. Alas, um, no more. Alas, no more. Unfortunately, well, you say that. But if if anglers are anything, we're optimists, and we have to look at the wider world. And there are a lot of dams coming down in America, and there's dams coming down uh, in France. So who's to know that someday there won't be a dam or two come down in Ireland? I can't say, but it mightn't happen in my time, but who knows?
1: We'll need a lot more wind turbines out in the ocean, I think. Because...
0: Actually, well, that's a question. Do you know, and we'll go, uh, you mightn't be able to answer this, but what amount of electricity in Inescarra Dam produces now um, compared to number of wind turbines?
2: I've I've seen a number of uh, figures and. Um, it, it is well below 1% of the country's electricity that it produces at the moment. I've heard someone saying it's below 0.2%. But times have moved on and they've moved on for Innescara as well too because um, in it, it, the, the city of Cork is now drawing water from the reservoirs at Inniskara, uh to Ringisgidi in Cork Harbour where all the chemical companies are and to various industry and for um, uh, uh, private residential supply. So it it, it has it now has a secondary purpose that it didn't have before, um, which makes it unlikely that the dam will come down um, uh, anytime, anytime soon. After, well, even before the collapse, the SB anticipated what would happen in the late 1950s, and... They, they built a hatchery at Carrigadrohid, which is where the upper dam is, um, mm-hmm. and they put a hatchery there for raising fry, which they released into the 73% of the catchment area, which is above in um, And they found that that was useless because unsuccessfully going down through the dam. So in 1968, that hatchery became a small rearing facility. And from 1968 on, they started releasing smalls below in the Scarra Dam, in other words, ranching smalls. And, um, for example, uh, last year, in uh, March 22, there were 70,000 smalls released in the Lower Lee. And this year, there will be 65,000 released. But the return of, of hatchery smalls back to the river is only a fraction of um, what the return of the wild smolts are. And for example the loss to the lee is the spring run. The, we're getting practically no uh, hatchery thin clip smalls in our spring catches. We are getting them in the grill catches in the summer and our observations um, through the club and um, wider from I know from talking to Uh, some of the IFI fishery officers who would observe some of the catches with the draft nets in Cork Harbour. Um, There's about one in five of our grills, are hatchery origin. So the bulk of the rest of them um, are coming from two tributaries below the dam, the bride, which is by far the most important uh, tributary, and also the shornook. I'm convinced that there is some percentage still going through the dam because there are quite a number of uh, salmon who do not have a clip adipose fin, in other words, um, indicating wild origin. There's quite a few of those still going through the dam. Now, the average number of salmon which goes through the dam each year, through in the Scara Dam where there's a counter, it's about five hundred. I, I have the figures there, you'll see them towards the end of the book, Darrell of what has gone through since since the very uh, since nineteen fifty seven. I've um, seen that. But, th- um, but that's that's
0: that's a raise now from let's say
2: nineteen sixty one, but it actually went
0: down to a hundred. So it is yeah. after well, after sixty years it has made its way back up to, to five hundred. But well, it uh, did
2: raised- it was originally three thousand still well the, the, the 3000 is a very very low estimate. Um, that that's 3000 when god knows how many of them were poisoned well not poisoned but were died from deoxygenation below the dam and the thing about the 500 that is there at the minute um, quite a lot of those that are going through are homing back to the cargo of the hatchery that they came out but there there are um, wild fish going through because when they trap for the hatchery they get a percentage of, of them and we do know from the monthly um, uh, stats of uh, the salmon going through the dam in the early months of the year we do know there are fish going upstream then whereas the, the rod downstream in the spring months are no longer reflecting um, fin clip fish there were many years ago, and there's all differences for that that I'd be half the night telling you about. Uh, but the fact that wild fish are going through the dam, numbers in the earlier months of the year, suggests to me they can't all be strays. There, there must be some wild spawn still going on in the dam, and some of them are getting down, probably with massive devastation as they come through either the, the turbines or down the fish pass. There, there are three ways smalls can come through the dam. Either of the two turbines. One turbine was never tested for mortality. That's the big turbine. Um, <clears throat> the small turbine, uh, <clears throat> which um, that was tested in the mid-sixties by um, what the IFI of the day, and the scientists there found that the smalls that came through that turbine which was a comparatively small percentage of the total run of smalls, Uh, they were either dead or none would survive. Um, And I have that report. I managed to unearth that that report. Um, So there's some few, I think, coming down, and I would love to see research done um, that would uh, improve things.
0: Now that there have been so many dams worldwide, have there been any successful methods in getting smolts to use the fish pass, or any, you know, any There's, places where you, they improve the they improve the mortality, or should we say, lessen the mortality rate of smolts running down? And if they did, how did they do it?
2: The answer to your question is yes, but the, when you talk of a dam, the first thing you must understand is a dam is like a person like a picture, like a fine summer's day. Every single one of them is different. Height, volume of water, pressure, all kinds of things. A critical thing, for example, is the turbines, the, the, the turning of the blades, how fast they turn. At Innescara, the small turbine is revolves at a hugely high rate. And um, one scientist said to me many years ago, he said anything coming down there would be minced meat, and that was the findings of that report I found in 1965. The the bigger turning uh, turbine uh, next to it, that turns at a much slower rate, and there was some possibility. One scientist said to me that some of the smokes coming through there may survive. Now, the big issue I would have with the dam is the fish pass there. Is the smalls that do come into the top chamber when they topple down. They're in in free fall down. I could best describe it as a lift shaft. It's not quite vertical, but it's not far off it. And they are contained within the column of water. Now, I could bore you with research, but I won't. And just tell you that a small falling in a column of water um, is a high risk of damage after he falls thirteen meters, um, and in the lee they're falling well in excess of thirty meters. so the the only scientific report I could find on such path is that serious damage would be done. Now, let that go to the upper dam at Carigadro, which is much smaller, uh, the turbine revolves at a lower rate. And the smalls are able to go up are able to come down through there without that station. A small number may be killed or a small percentage. Um, but um, you, you have all the dams around the country where can pass through. Um, and uh, I, I, I have found um, some research uh, proving that. We um, know in America, are there other ways done? Um, the old thing... The truck trailer is a big one in America in some of the huge dams. In other words, the smalls are um, trapped in the their intake and they're diverted into tanks and, and there's so many of this either, um, they start up the lorry and they bring them stream. Often they may have to go downstream on some of the big rivers past four, five, six, seven dams to release them um, maybe hundreds of miles downstream where they're below, um, where they can be damaged by turbines, et cetera, and let them off. But that's very costly and um, requires an awful lot of manpower. And let, let's put it frankly here, um, the ESB, who is the responsibility for the dams here, um, I don't believe they have any stomach for spending that kind of money.
0: Very interesting. Very interesting.
2: Where there's a will, there's a way, Tom.
1: Tell me this, um, Dan, it... Some of, what I love about this book is and in terms of also the kind of um input from the anglers you know just talking about their own memories and you know and like you, when you pick up the book it's a real kind of social and cultural kind of history um yeah the river you know which which I enjoyed about it like you said it wasn't just a, a club history you know it was it gave you the kind of like the overarching history of it um I was uh, one of the contributions from Deman Williams um oh yeah some lovely description there and i'm just going to read a bit out for it there could be no doubt that prior to the 1950s damming the league coursed through its valleys and pastures with a rare splendor serenity and fertility it was the organic lifeblood of countless communities and small holdings richly feeding their way of life customs families and livelihoods along its meandering way The river evoked the changing seasons, constantly bringing fresh promise of nature's bountiful harvest to bolster human endeavor and to enrich lives. In epitomizing as it does such comforts to the soul, how sorrowful is it that like the mayfly, our surgeon by life river is so short. I think it's brilliant. It's beautiful writing, mm. but it gives you a real sense of kind of what it meant and, and the valley of it like. Tell me this, Dan, um, what's the fishing like on it nowadays? Is there many people fishing it in terms of, you know,
2: members of the there, Angling Clubs? Like, and- yeah, the one, the one thing that seems to have changed in recent years is, is members, they seem to come into the clubs I leave the clubs now more rapidly than was the case before We will see like park in the broader area, something like two hundred thousand people there 's not a lot of places on eight miles of water, five of it being five miles of it being kind of worthwhile so uh, there were always um uh, waiting lists for the club and and people would say it was close shop, etc et etc cetera, et cetera. that wasn 't the case and and, and it certainly wasn 't for um uh, people with bigger checkbooks than others. Um, uh, Our club has always prided itself on having members across all walks of life, from from doctors to dockers and and everything else in between. And that is still the case. And I think that's a great sign of a club to have a healthy mix of of people there. I'll just rattle out some stats for you to answer that. In, In 1920, sorry, in 2020, 2020, the rods on the lee returned um, a total of 591 fish caught 85 of those fish uh, were reported as retained now that put the lee as the 8th eighth, eighth best uh, angling river, river by numbers in the country the nets on top of that took six, 759 fish and that's a total of 1350 fish uh, caught on, on the river in 2021 the total was 902 by the rods, uh, 86 retained, and it was the sixth highest uh, rod catch in Ireland. The nets took 539. Now, the Lee is a brown tag river, and um, there was a recent draw, uh, and there was something over 200 anglers applied for um, a, a brown tag. Now, the reality is there's probably three or 400 anglers that would fish the, the river between the free water and the club. Um, and there's some very useful free water inside, right at the top of the tide at, at Cork City Waterworks. There's a lot of fish caught there every summer because if there isn't water coming down the, 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 the main river sufficient for them to run upstream, they hold up and lodge there and they get caught in good numbers. And, the great thing to see very much like the lakes tom the amount of fish that are being put back now um it it's it's terrific it's marvelous to see and i i, I know catch and release has its critics and that but you know i've never seen that salmon got a bang in the head i've never seen one of them breach the spawning beds the fellow oh, definitely won't what <laughs> Yeah, the fellow who's released to fight another day, he will make his way upstream, and there's going to be a very significant portion of those that spawn to 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 survive, and re, re, not so much survive, but to uh, regenerate.
1: Tell me, this Dan. is there many um, uh, brown trout anglers on the river?
2: Yeah, and brown trout fishing is quite quite good, um, and 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 again, the catch and release on on, on that is is terrific. Or club, now we we have. Um, uh, some anglers who fish solely for brown trout. That'd be a huge number. But um, mostly it's uh, summer evenings and that. And I'm not sure how it was last year. I didn't hear too many of them talking about it. But I know in in, in recent years it has been very good. You know fellas getting some of them five, six trout. Uh, some of the really good uh, lads on the right evenings getting 15, 20 trout. um. Uh, on mixture of dry fly and wet fly and that. Um, and and virtually all of those fish are released, um, which I think is marvellous. That's really
0: good. What's the stamp of the trout in it,
2: Dan? What, what, half the, pound or quarters of a pound? You, I haven't fished for trout on the lead, Tom, since I was a, a kid. Um, and if you got a half pound trout, it, you'd be pleased. When we'd be fishing in the spring there, or no, pheasant tail nymph with a deadly fly, six, seven ounces was the kind of go of it. But there are much bigger trout there, and there were always bigger trout in it, up to several pounds weight. And I know one angler got a trout there, must be five or six years ago now, and um, he was over eight pounds weight. And he was gotten a dry sedge in the summer's evening. I saw a picture of that trout, and there's no doubt as to what he weighed. Dan, can I
1: ask you um, just last few questions? Um, it was fascinating to listen to you. Some amount of detail and depth of information that you have. Um, was there anything that
2: surprised you during your research and writing of the book? I was surprised when I knocked on doors that the dogs weren't set on me in a few places. I was really surprised at you mentioned Williams there now. Several people like him. I didn't know Diarmuid Williams from Adam and Diarmuid is his father was a doctor born out in McCroom, of the famous Williams family who had Williams Hotel. Now that was a fishing hotel where fellas would come year in, year out and they at least, the river up there had some very good water and all the Williams lads were great anglers. Um, some one of the old anglers in, in, in the club, he told me that there was this man who had a holiday home in Waterville, and that if I could get his number, he had some interesting tales to tell of the old river. So um, I got onto somebody else who got onto somebody in Waterville who got a number for this man in the UK and I rang him. Well, the delight that Dermot had, that we should be interested in writing this book. Like, Dermot was born in the UK, but he knew all about the river from his father, and um, I'm not sure if he was old enough, or if he was around when his grandfather was there, but he couldn't do enough. He searched the country getting uh, uh, for, for me. He sent me an old tape recording when his Dad was 80 years of age in 1979. He sat him down and he asked him to name the pools in the upper lee. Um, And he he rattled off quicker than I could talk, 50 pools. And when I was doing my own research afterwards, I was able to cross-section or to cross-reference those pools. And they were all barring one. I have a question mark over the one. They were all spot on any of those I could verify um, and he had them all in the, the, the right order and um, that's that's just a small example of of the kind of trouble that that man took. There was another man as well that I never met but I, 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 I met him after the book was published Um, his, his name was John, I can't think of his surname at the moment now and someone gave me his number and said try this fella and John went knocking on doors. He was from back that country, living in the city. He went, back that he went knocking on doors, lived right in centre, and he came up with some marvelous contacts. Um, and And his contribution um, was very important to 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 what I call the drowned river, the waters above the dams.
1: Well, it's um uh, you did incredible service and work um, documenting it, Dan, um, and putting it together. And I think it's like I said, it's 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 something for a historical um, record as well to have um, before we let you go Dan final question we always ask our guests is uh, what was your most memorable fish on the fly
2: and was it on the river Lee <laughs> yeah
0: that's the big question <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: um, uh, no in fact um, but
0: <laughs> I, knew,
2: I knew you'd ask me that and, and I, I, I'm going to give you three ones very quickly but before I do so if any of your listeners are interested in getting this book, uh, Salmon of the River Lee, the only place they will get it is with Cocky Bandu Books in Wales. Let's, um, anglebooks.com. They have, yeah, they have very few copies left. I spoke with Paul Morgan, uh, at the proprietor at Christmas time. He said they have about six or seven left. Um, and there won't be a, re, a rerun, um, a, a reprint, not by me oh. anyway. But to come back to your question about the um, uh, the fish, I have a very memorable fish from the leaf, which was a trout about nine or 10 ounces. It taught me a very salutary lesson when I was about 14 years of age. I was trout fishing, saw this trout rise across from me, covered him, got him, landed him. And when I did, he had nylon on him. And when I examined him, I found some careless angler had thrown a lump of strong nylon, 15, 16 pounds breaking strain, into the river. And there was a a closed non-running loop in it. And by some miracle, it passed over the trout's head and had stopped in front of his dartle and in front, underneath him, in front of his, the middle section fins. And as the trout grew, the nylon caught in, Over his back and through his belly, so he had a complete loop of nylon inside, and four—I suppose you could call them—stigmata, two up on either side of his back and two below. And he was doing perfectly well. Um, And uh, I never forgot that lesson, Um, and uh, it's worth passing on now so no one would be tempted to leave nylon on the bank and if you Mm. see someone else with nylon, pick the bloody thing up. Um, The next rise I'll tell you about is the sea trout, the next uh, fish. In the Hebrides one time, I I got a, a big sea trout six and a half to seven pounds weight and it was the rise that made it so special. He jumped out of the water for Not less than six feet away from the flies, totally cleared the water, came down on top of the top dropper and took it on the way in. I had never seen a a rise as spectacular as that before, but the gilly who was with me assured me that he had, and it's only a very big trout you would see do it. Now I did have since I have seen other very large trout. uh, I have seen two or three others do something similar, but not as spectacular, clearly, completely out of the water, down. No act that he was going for that guy. How he managed it, I don't know. And the the other fish I remember, fishing below in Killarney, in Lop Lane, Tom, I know you'll have fished it a few times. Right. Fishing, for half, fishing for Half Pounders, a place called yeah. Benson's Pond which is a good salmon lie, and going down there one day with my little nine-foot fiberglass rod, 20th of July 1985, and seeing this lobe of the tail come up over, over, dartle appeared then, down on my flies, and I knew he was a good one, and you're supposed to wait till you feel him. I waited, he disappeared, and I said, bugger this, I lifted, and I had him. And an hour and a quarter later, we got him in the boat, and he was 17 pounds weight, five pound cast. Um, and he's my most memorable salmon on the fly.
0: Some, tr- some, some fish. I was going to say, Trout,
2: that's phenomenal. 17, 17 plus. 17 pound spot on. The he was on on glass case now, Tom.
1: Yeah, fair play. wow, fair play. There's some stories. Dan O'Dolven, it's been brilliant chatting to you. Um, I think we'll get you on because we wanted to chat to you also about your monograph on Sydney Spencer. Um, we didn't get a chance to mm-hmm. talking about the Hebrides. I know you've fished, um, you know, a lot of places. So I think we'll definitely get you on if you come on again and we, we'll chat on about uh, your other fishing stories. There seems to be plenty there.
2: If if you'll put up with me, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I'll actually, well. Maybe if you keep that promise, if you keep that promise uh, to, to Tom to come up for the mayfly, I could tell a few yarns um, inside, in, inside around Laffey's. How would you think of that, Tom? Oh, no problem. No problem. They're not yarns. No, come on. They're, they're stories.
0: They're credible stories. I won't, I won't hear them called yarns. Can I just leave it?
1: So, Dana Donovan, Salmon of the River Lee is the name of the book. It's go to anglebooks.com um to get your last few copies i think there's only five now left down because i got one um, a couple of yeah. days ago so there's only five <laughs> five left um i do want to finish with and i love this quote that's on the inside um jacket cover to sum up the lee and it says i am lucky in having a friend who has some fishing on the lee i stayed about 10 days at the hut in april 1927 and never except in newfoundland have i seen so many salmon at a modest estimate, some of the pools, which were all small, must have held between 300 and 400 fish. And that's yeah. J.W. Sane from Irish Bogs, 1928. Just to give you some idea, isn't it? Like what it was, yeah. what it must have been
2: like. Dan
1: Donovan, thanks again for, for joining us on the show.
2: If I could have one last word, Dara. Of course. What has happened to the Lee, we should never let anything like that happen to the great jewels we have left. Likes of and the likes of, of covered. and one little irritant I have at times is anger of mourning. Mourn, alright, but for goodness' sake, when something needs dealing with, mourn to the right people and in the right place.
1: Here, here. Well said, yep. Dan. Yep. Thanks for, thank you for joining us. And well said.
0: Our thanks to Dan O'Donovan for joining us on the show. And don't forget to rate, review, and follow the Island on the Fly podcast on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcast
1: from. Plus, you can keep up to date on on IrelandOnTheFly.com as well as on Instagram. And myself and Tom will be back with another episode about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland.
0: The mayfly is up and the excitement is palpable.
1: Wherever you are in Ireland, the lakes and rivers are soon to be hatching with mayfly soon.
0: And to help you improve your catch rate this season, we've used a Mayfly Tactics Masterclass with international angler, guide and renowned tyre, Jackie Mann.
1: If you want to learn about setup, tactics, conditions and flies, then head over to www.arlandonthefly.com forward slash masterclass, where you can find out all the details to access the recording and Jackie's notes.
0: If you want to catch that difficult fish or try out new tactics, then this masterclass is for you.